What a glorious morning of worship today. And on this Easter Sunday, I invite you to open your Bible and follow along. We're going to look at a text of Scripture that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. So if you have your Bible, look with me to 1 Corinthians 15, and that's the text that we want to look at today in just a moment. On this Easter day, I want us to consider what is so important about Easter. Why is it such a big deal, and why is it so important? What makes Christianity so different from all other religions? What distinguishes it from others? What is the most foundational truth that Christians believe? Today, I want us to consider the most important truth in all of the world. Listen closely. I think it's the most important truth in all of eternity. It's the most important message today that you'll ever hear. It's the one thing, if it's not true, it guts Christianity from its power and from life with meaning. And it all has to do with Jesus of Nazareth, a man who lived in Palestine, who was reared in a simple carpenter's home into relative obscurity until age 30. He was born to working class people, but he launched a ministry at 30 anointed by the Spirit of God. He lived a perfect life. He showed us how to love. He died at the hands of hateful men. And he rose again from the grave. This is the greatest news I know in all of the world. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul writes, Now I want to make clear... For you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you've taken your stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he appeared to me also. (laughs) Amen. Father, I pray that you bless the reading of your word today, and I pray that we might listen closely as your spirit is speaking Holy Spirit of God, do business in our life today, we pray. 
confront us with our hypocrisy, our lethargy, our apathy, and our sin. Convince us of what is truth. Convict us of who Christ is. And Father, comfort us in our grief. And God, lead us to surrender to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Oh, Father, I pray that we would set aside the things that distract us. Lord, I pray that we would focus our attention on you. And Father, I pray that you would do business in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the most important truth in all of life? First of all, Paul lays it out. He says, I passed on to you, verse 3, as of most, what is most important. The most important thing that I know in my life. This is what the apostle is saying. And it's simply this, Christ died for our sins. You know, first thing I think we need to understand, this is important truth. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is Messiah. In verse number three, he says, Christ, that means the Messiah, and that is Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus was no ordinary man. At the narrative of his birth, the angels say to the shepherds, born for you this day in the city of David is a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He is Christ the Lord. In John chapter number one, we are told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And listen to how John says it. He says, he was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him and apart from him. Not one thing was created that had been as created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness could not overcome it. Notice in verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacle dwelt among us. And we observed, beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and of truth. There is no other man like Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. His Jesus of Nazareth was proved to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Messiah. To the Samaritan woman at the well, he says, Jesus told her, I and the one who is speaking to you, I am he. I am the Messiah. Peter, remember when he says, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And the disciples said, some say you're Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. But he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father, which is in heaven. Amen. Listen, I'm telling you right now. It is the greatest confession you'll ever make is when you come to understand that Jesus was not an ordinary prophet nor an ordinary man, but that Jesus is the Christ. He is the king that was prophesied of who came for all of our salvation. 
in First John, First John chapter number one. Listen to God's word. First John chapter one. Beginning with verse number one. What was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've observed and touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, that life was revealed, manifest, made clear to us. We have seen it and testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. And what we've seen and heard, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son. And who is his Son? Jesus, Messiah, the Christ. I'm telling you, Jesus is no ordinary man. He is Messiah. Hallelujah. His life is different than any other life. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. He's no ordinary man. Tell how the angels in chorus sang as they welcomed his birth. Glory to God in the highest. Peace and good tidings to earth. This is the story of Jesus. Paul said he's not only Messiah, but it says Christ died for our sins. Can somebody say amen? He died for your sins and he died for mine. You see, the king is coming to rule, but this ruling king comes to suffer as a servant for all of our sins. How many of us all, how many of you have ever sinned in your life? Good. I'm glad to see most of you aren't lying. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, and every one of us has turned to his own way. You know, we are all sinners, aren't we? We're sinners by nature and sinners by birth. You can't save yourself because you're a sinner. You're disabled by your sin. You see, we live in a world, and I don't want to offend anybody, but maybe I do. And so, uh, I'm, I, and so hang on, I get ready to be offended. You are a sinner. You can tell your neighbor you're a sinner. Go ahead, tell them. Without Christ, you're a sinner. I'm telling you, you're a sinner. Dr. Carl Menninger, a psychiatrist years ago, wrote a book. And the name of the book was Whatever Happened to Sin. And he saw the real issue with people is that we've identified sin, not being sin, but as a disease. Not sin against God, not sin against ourselves, not sin against others. But we label it, well, it's a disease, it's a sickness, he just can't help it. It's a disability, it's, it's caused by his environment, or it's caused by his parents, or it's caused by society st uh, structures. I'm telling you, that's the big lie that's told today. So nobody's ever accountable because nobody's really a sinner. The problem is 
that you, we are all sinners. Now, I don't want to insult your sensibilities, but I want you to listen close. Maybe I do. Listen closely. We're all sinners by nature and by birth. And let me tell you clear, clearly, immorality is sin. I don't care how you dress it up or label it, what kind of lipstick you put on it. It is sin, and it's sin against holy God. And drunkenness is sin, and addictive use of drugs is sin, and lying is a sin, and theft is a sin, and adultery is a sin, and hypocrisy is a sin, and we've all sinned against a holy God, and we're all accountable for it. You never get better until you realize that you're a sinner. And let me tell you what sin does to you. Sin is described in the Bible. Number one, it's called sin is missing the mark. It's falling short of God's plan and ideal. Falling short of what God wants you to be. Falling short of what God has said for us to do. Sin is also described as rebellion. There's rebellion deep in our heart and disobedience out of that rebellion it's in me. It's in you. It's in my kids. It's in my kids-in-law. It's in my grandkids. I love them, but they're little sinners. They are. You know, Joey does things. She says, Joe, I love her so much. But she just looks at you and just does what she wants to do. You're going to get a spanking. You're going to get a pop if you do that. And she just turns, like, go ahead and give it to me. Mm -hmm. Where does she learn that? From her dad. This is sin. But you'll never understand the fullness of it because you're not holy. And in the end, sin is against him. Amen. And sin is against you. And it impacts your life. It affects you completely. And when we sin against holy God and when we sin against ourselves, when we are sinning, I'm telling you, this is what it brings. It brings guilt. Because you know you're a lawbreaker. You know you're disobedient. You know that there's something gnarled and twisted and iniquitous inside of you. And there's a shame. And you feel separate from God. And you feel fractured in your own self. This is what sin does. Sin damages and destroys relationships, marriages, friendships. Sin affects your mind. Sin affects your spirit. Sin affects your body. Sin affects your psyche. Sin disables you. Sin devastates you. And sin destroys you. Sin leaves you empty. Sin makes you feel lonely. Sin puts a hunger for something that only God can satisfy. But in your blinded state, you seek to be satisfied in everything else 
which only leads to further distress, further hunger, greater fear, and you become hollow-eyed and empty. And you bear it. You bear the weight of it. But the good news is Christ died for your sin. Woo! Hallelujah. He didn't just die generally. He died specifically. He died for your sins. He took my sins and my sorrows and he made them his very own. He suffered He bore your burden to Calvary and he suffered and died alone. What a wonderful God. What a wonderful Savior. Christ died for your sins. Paul said, listen, listen, according to what? The scripture. You see, he is not only Messiah, Jesus, but he's the suffering servant of Isaiah. In the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, we see the gospel of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. In the 53rd, listen, yet he himself, Jesus, bore our sins and he carried our pains. We just sang about this. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. Amen. Crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment of our peace was on him. And we were healed by his wounds. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He bore our sins. He paid the full price and penalty of our sin. Peter wrote, he said in chapter number 2 and verse number 24, 1 Peter, he himself, emphatic, he himself, by himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live for righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. In chapter 3, verse 18 of Peter, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, it says in Titus 3.14. He bore my burden and he suffered and died alone. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. According to the scripture, Isaiah 53, of course. But not only that, all of the Old Testament worship 
was a picture of what Jesus would come and do. According to the scripture, you see, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the God's glory. This has been the condition of all mankind since the fall of Adam. And the Israelites were to seek and worship a holy God who had called them, who, would, who was with them, who walked with them, who had delivered them out of slavery and made them to be his people. Yet they were sinful. And God says, if you're going to worship, worship me, a holy God, then here's the basis on which you worship me. And the basis was on bringing blood sacrifices before God. You see, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And all things are cleansed by blood, the Bible tells us. And so those worshipers that came to the temple, they wouldn't come. Oh, we have sanitary worship compared to that. Their worship is seemingly... They were bringing in animals, and they would slay those animals and capture the blood. The animal had to be without spot or blemish, and the blood was presented to God as an offering for sin. But the truth of the matter is, it was blood that was not their own. It was the blood of an innocent victim, but that innocent victim was an animal victim not the blood of a man. And the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It was just a picture of the one who could take away sin. And that is Jesus Christ. And he is the perfect, he is the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He is a man without spot or blemish. He lived a perfect life. And Jesus Christ bore your sins and my sins on the, on the cross. He paid for them in full. And Jesus presented, he went into the very throne room of God on the day that he died. And atonement was made for all of our sin because the perfect sacrifice was made for all of eternity. This is the greatest news and I'll know in all the world. I don't have to bear my sin anymore because Christ bore it for me. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on my part that I might become the righteousness of God in him. This is an amazing thing. My sin, oh, the bliss, oh, the joy of this, oh, the happy joy of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Isn't that the greatest news in all the world? Man, tell me. The story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Tell of the years of his labor. Tell of the sorrow he bore. He was despised and afflicted, homeless, rejected, and poor. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Tell of the cross where they nailed him, writhing in anguish and pain. This is what Jesus bore for you, all of your sin. All of it. And he was buried. 
It says he was buried, in the, and Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the scripture. They buried Jesus. In Matthew 27, we are told the story of Joseph of Arimathea who comes. He's a rich man, a secret disciple, along with Nicodemus. They come and they ask Pilate for the body. They wrapped it hurriedly because Sabbath was approaching. They wrapped it in the finest linen and they placed it in a new tomb that had been cut out of the rocks. And a great stone was rolled in front of it. On the next day, the authorities came to Pilate and said, you know, we need to make that grave as secure as possible. Some of his disciples might come and try and steal that body away. He said, well, they won't steal that body away. You go down there and you put a Roman seal on that stone. And you put Roman guards, and by the authority of Rome, this stone will not be moved. Well, there's a little bit higher authority than Rome. Amen. In the 28th chapter of Matthew, we find the story of one Mary Magdalene, who had been radically changed by Jesus, and another Mary who came mother of James, most likely. Salome was there as well, James and John's mother. It was dawn early on Sunday morning, and the earth was shaking by earthquake. And an angel, a mighty angel of the Lord, descended and rolled back the stone and sat on top of it. I think God's speaking, don't you? His appearance was as lightning and his clothing brilliantly white like snow. And where were the guards? Shaken like dead men, scared out of their wits. And when the women approached this angel of the Lord in all of his power and strength said don't be afraid girls I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified he's not here he's risen just as he said come here girls look at the place where he lay now go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and they ran to tell the good news. I love it that the ones that were last at the grave were first at the tomb and given the first gospel message to preach. And that's the women. Amen. In Mark's gospel, chapter 16, the story's told just slightly different. It's Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome. Again, Right at sunrise, the first day of the week. And this was the question that was on their mind as they approached the garden tomb. Who will roll away the stone? And looking up, they saw the large stone rolled away. 
And when they looked inside, there was an angel, a young man in the tomb, white apparel, and they were alarmed. And he said, you're looking for Jesus, but he's not here. He's risen. See the place where he lay. Here's the truth, my friends. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, but he was buried and rose again the third day, according to the scripture. Christ is risen from the dead. Not only that, not only that, he appeared. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12, Paul says, and he appeared to over 500 at one time. In John's gospel, we're told about one of those appearances. Mary is outside of the tomb weeping, looking into the tomb. There are two angels inside of the tomb, sitting where the body once was, one at the head and one at the foot. And they simply said to her, Mary, why are you weeping, woman? She said, because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. And then she turned and she saw a man standing there and she supposed it to be the gardener. And she said, sir, she's weeping and crying. And he says, why are you weeping? Who is it that you're seeking? She doesn't know it's Jesus. I love it, so tender. And she supposes him to be the gardener. And she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where and I'll come and get him and take him. And he said, Mary. And when he said her name, she said, Rabboni, master teacher. And after that encounter, she came running back to Peter and John and the rest. I have seen the Lord. Amen. There's another appearance that took place on Sunday night after Resurrection Sunday morning. The doors are locked for fear of the Jews. Gathered are the little band of disciples, and all of a sudden Jesus appears among them. Would that kind of scare the bejeebers out of you? And he said, peace, shalom be unto you. And he showed him his hands, and he showed him his side, and they rejoiced because they saw the Lord. One of the disciples wasn't there. You know his name? Thomas. Tomboy wasn't there. And Tom, when he heard about it, says, I don't believe it. I will not believe it. I won't believe it unless I see it with my own eyes. I won't believe it unless I see the prince in his hands and the hole in his side. I won't believe it unless I touch it and see it and know it myself. And one week later, they're again behind closed doors. And Thomas is there, and Jesus shows up. And again, he says, peace be unto you. And then he looks at that small band of believers. He said, Tom, it's good to see you here today. Tom, come here. And he says, reach forth your finger and see my hand. Put forth your hand and feel and see my side. Put it in my side. And then he looked at him and he said, Tom, don't be unbelieving, but believing. And he said, 
my Lord and my God. Jesus rose again from the dead. And then Saul, Paul says, and one other that he appeared to, as if one untimely born, he appeared unto me. In the 22nd chapter of Acts, Paul in testimony shares that he was on the road to Damascus persecuting the church, and a light flashed and shone all around him. You know the story. And he heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, the one you're persecuting. My friends, when you're against the church, you're against Jesus. And he said, what shall I do? He said, you go into Damascus, it'll be shown you what to do. And God raises up Ananias to come and witness unto him and to pray for him. When Ananias arrives, he says to Saul, get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, call on his name. My question to you, have you seen him? Do you know him? Have you surrendered your heart and your life unto him? There's one other appearance. It was an appearance that John had of the resurrected Jesus. It's found in the book of Revelation, chapter number 1. I want you to listen closely. And this is what Jesus looks like today. In verse number 12, And then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Do you see it? Dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. Now read it with me. The hair of his head was as white as wool. White as what? Snow. And his eyes like what? fiery flame and his feet were like fine bronze as it's fired in a furnace and his voice like the sound of cascading waters wow and he had seven stars in his right hand and a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was shining like the full sun the sun at full strength wow and when I saw him what? I fell at his feet like what? A dead man. And he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead. But look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and life. That's King Jesus, my friends. Woo! Awesome. So what does all this mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
Number one, it means this. It means that God loves you with an everlasting love. Tell your neighbor next to you, God loves you. He has proven it undeniably so. He's loved you so much that he gave his only son for you. In John chapter, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God demonstrated his own love for you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much did God love you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I love to play with my grandchildren. I often just do this because I just love to do it. We'll sit at the table or be in the floor playing with them. And I'll say, who loves Papa? Raise their hand. Often they raise their hand. I says, who loves mommy? They almost always raise their hand. Who loves daddy? They always raise their hand. Then I say, who loves mama? Both hands go up. <laughs> then I'll say, who loves Jesus? And they raise their hands. Because I want them to know the story of Jesus. Amen. I want to tell them the story of Jesus. God loves you so much that he sent the Prince of Heaven for you. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Tell of the cross where they nailed him, writhing in anguish and pain. Tell of the grave where they laid him. Tell how he liveth again. Love in that story so tender, clearer than ever I see. Stay, let me weep while you whisper. Love paid the ransom. For me, tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Hmm. Not only does God love you, he can, you can be forgiven. Since Jesus rose again from the dead, you no longer are in your sins. If you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, that you have hope of forgiveness and eternal life. Romans 4.25 says he was delivered up for our, trans our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 16 and 17, listen to what Paul has to say. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Listen, if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, you're still in your sins. If Christ Jesus Christ has not 
been raised, then those who have died have perished. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, then everybody that preaches the gospel is just a liar. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, then life is empty and we're all perishing. If Jesus Christ is not raised, then the death is just the end and there's no real meaning to life. But the truth of the matter is, Christ has been raised from the dead. And that means you can be forgiven of all of your sin, no matter what. And there is hope of eternal life for you forever and ever. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again, in verse number 20. But all of it is, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive, and each to his own order, Christ the firstfruits. And after, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father and when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power, he must reign until he puts his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be abolished is death. I'm telling you there is hope beyond the grave. But if Christ is still in the grave, we have no hope. But he's not in the grave. He rose again. So there's hope for all of us. I'm telling you, I've done funerals all of my life. I started pastoring a church when I was 21 years old. In the first year of my pastorate, there was a young man by the name of Bill, and Bill Henry died. And when he died, he was on his deathbed in his last moment of his life. His sweet wife, Effie, reached over, and she kissed him on the cheek, and she simply said to him, Honey, I'll see you in the morning. I'll see you in the morning. She knew, and when he gave up his last breath, she said, I'll see him again in the morning. But I'm telling you, if Christ is still in the grave, she won't see him in the morning. But praise God, he's not in the grave. He rose again, and she shall see him in the morning because we have a hope beyond the grave. When I was pastor in that little church when I was just a college student. There was a terrible train wreck. A woman and her sister and a bunch of children in the car and Joe and Carol Boner lost a six-year-old and an eight-year on Christmas Eve. We buried an eight-year-old and a six-year, and I stood in freezing cold temperatures in a cemetery as they lowered those two little caskets into the ground. And their hearts were broken. And we were comforted that someday we would see them again. When I first came a pastor here, there was a little infant died of SIDS. Sudden infant death. As I stood by that couple who was heartbroken, I knew there was hope because Jesus rose again from the dead. And when I had pastored a church like this, I look out and I see so many of you. I know you by name and I've stood with you. I've stood with you while you buried your daddy or your mom or your brother or your sister or your friend. I've been with you and you know the grief that you feel. But if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then it's all helpless and hopeless. But I'm telling you, Christ rose from the dead. And all who have their faith in him have the hope of eternal life. When my sweet mother-in-law passed away just a year and a half ago as COVID, and as we were in the hospital with her, and we got to see her one day just before she died, they allowed us in the hospital to see her. And when we got to see her, she said her last goodbyes to all of us. And she gave us words 
Ed Heard died, and we sang hymns as she gave up her last breath and went into heaven. She's buried in a little village outside of Medora, Illinois, and there's a tombstone that's there now, and on that grave are these words, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. That's true, because Jesus Christ rose again from the grave. Not only that, life has meaning. My life has purpose and meaning now because Jesus rose again from the dead. Paul closes 1 Corinthians 15 by these words. Therefore, my brothers, sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What we do in this life isn't empty because Jesus rose again from the grave. Time's done. I'm not, but time is. Listen here. The most important question of all is simply this. Has he appeared to you? Do you feel him wooing? Do you feel him calling? Do you feel, do you sense the voice of the Lord speaking to you, calling you unto salvation? You can't come on your terms, you come on his terms. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Question, have you repented of your sin? Have you turned from sin and trusted in Christ? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone, resting in him, believing in him? And have you received him as your savior? Trusted him as your master? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. The Lord is knocking. The Lord is speaking. The Lord is calling. Give your life to Christ and be saved today. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father in heaven, thank you for this great truth and great hope that we have in the gospel. The greatest news in all the earth. Father, today there's someone here in a crowd like today, that they've never really trusted Christ. I pray that today they might turn from their sin and trust Him. Receive Christ and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.